0: Welcome to Multilingual Montessori, a podcast where we discuss multilingualism, multiculturalism, and raising children from a Montessori perspective. I'm Gabrielle Kutkov, an AMI Montessori guide and TESOL instructor with a master's in child studies, and I'm the founder of Multilingual Montessori. You can find me on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and at multilingualmontessori.org. I am so excited to share today's conversation with you. My guests for this episode are Simone Davies and Junifa Uzodike, the authors of the upcoming book, The Montessori Child. They are both accomplished Montessorians and authors and just generally lovely people. We had a great conversation about their work and their upcoming book, and I know you're going to enjoy it. Simone Davies is the author of The Montessori Toddler and co-author of The Montessori Baby and the Montessori Child Books, Comprehensive Guides to Raising Children in a Montessori Way. Simone is an AMI Montessori educator based in Amsterdam. She also has a popular blog, Instagram, and podcast, The Montessori Notebook, and is mother to two young adults. Simone currently runs parent-child Montessori classes in Amsterdam at her school, Jacaranda Tree Montessori. Junifa Uzodike is an AMI 0-12 trained teacher, a wife, and mother to four children, all raised with Montessori principles from in utero. Junifa is the founder and head of school of Fruitful Orchard Montessori School in Abuja, Nigeria, serving children from 15 months to 12 years old. She is the co-author of the Montessori Baby and the Montessori Child books and sits on the board of Association Montessori International. Their new book, The Montessori Child, comes out on March 5th, 2024, and is now available for pre-order. If you pre-order it, you can access digital bonuses through the publisher that include a collection of poetry and songs curated by Simone and Junifa, illustrated clothing labels for drawers, an observation sheet for when difficult situations arise, and much more. And if you would like to win a copy of the book, be sure to take my podcast listener survey. As I enter a new year of podcasting, I would love to learn more about you, the listener, and what you'd like to hear from this podcast, even if this is the first time you're listening. To thank you for taking the podcast listener survey, you'll be entered to win your choice of ebook from guests on the Multilingual Montessori podcast, including The Montessori Child by Simone and Junifa. You can find the link to the podcast listener survey in the episode description. Okay, let's get into my conversation with Simone and Junifa. Well, welcome to the Multilingual Montessori podcast, Simone and Junifa. I'm so happy that you're both here. I'd like to get started by asking you each to give us a little introduction. Tell us your name, where you live and about your family. So Junifa, do you wanna go first? Sure, my name is Junifa
1: Dike. I live in Abuja, Nigeria, in Africa. Um, My family are married with four children. My first son, Selu, is 10. Uh, My second son is eight. My third is a girl, my daughter Biendu. She's six, and I recently had a baby who just turned eight months. Ah, so.
0: congratulations!
2: Thank you so much. My name is Simone Davis. I live in the Netherlands, but I am originally from Australia. But I've lived here for seventeen years, so both are home to me. Um, I have two children who are now young adults. Um, Oliver is now twenty-three, and Emma's twenty-one, and they're at university, so they're out of the nest. Um, and I'm enjoying working at Montessori, the tree Montessori, where I run my parent child classes and yeah, writing the book with Junifo was also a delight. So that's been happily as well.
0: Awesome. Well, we're going to talk all about this and, uh, as I mentioned before we started recording, I'm just so thrilled to speak to you both because I've been a fan of your books for years, and Simone, I met you years ago when I was doing my Montessori training in London, and you came to do a little presentation to us about how you started your Montessori Parent-Child Center, so mm-hmm. I remember um, just kind of following your journey to being a Montessori superstar, so it's very exciting to talk about these things. I yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Okay, so let's kind of go back to the beginning. I would love to hear how you were first introduced to Montessori and what first drew you to Montessori.
2: Yeah, I think what happens with a lot of us is it comes through our own children and I was looking for a preschool for my kids and we went to an open day at a Montessori preschool and it was just the sweetest room that you walked into. Everything just looked so inviting and the educators were so sweet, like not only to asked but they spoke with so respect so much respect to the kids as well and so I was just like completely spent like I want to be here so um my children went on the wait list there and I started attending a Montessori play group in the same um location and I fell in love with it because I'm like oh this is what I how I want to raise my children but I didn't know it existed so um then I soon after started doing my Montessori training um and that was back in 2004 so I guess I'm coming up to my 20th anniversary um all things Montessori
1: which is really exciting
0: wow that's awesome how about you Jennifer?
1: Um, So I actually was
0: working in a completely different
1: field. I was working as a finance and strategy manager at an automotive company. But my mom was a teacher and she owned a school at the time. And so she was visiting me in the U.S. And um, whenever she would visit, she liked to go visit schools. And there happened to be a Montessori school close to me. And um, I wasn't even supposed to take her. Someone else was supposed to take her. But the person, it didn't work out for her to take, the person to take her. And so I got to take her. And I don't know. There was just something about the environment. It was so beautiful. I had never seen children so peaceful. I didn't have children at the time. I think at the time, I was also searching for more. I loved my work, but I didn't feel like I was really making an impact on anyone. So I was looking for something that would allow me to make an impact. And just being there... And the lady who gave us the tour, she was, I don't know, there was something about her that just really struck me. And so I left and I wanted to know more. I started to order more books from Amazon. I signed up for courses. And as they say, <laughs> here we are all those years
0: later. I think it's almost um getting to 13 years now, actually. Wow. That's awesome. So you both run your own Montessori programs Tell me a little bit about what your role is now and kind of how it's evolved over the years. So I founded and I
1: run Fruitful Orchard Montessori School in Abuja. Uh, I started it six years ago. Actually, it was exactly six years ago yesterday. Um, I started with just a children's house. I was the children's house guide. And I started it because I wanted... Um, a program, like all of the ones that I had seen for my children. I had visited other Montessori schools in Nigeria, but none of them really gave me the feel that I had that experience that I had had that first Montessori school that I visited. So I really wanted to recreate that experience for my own children. And so that's how I started. So I started out as the children's house guide, and then we added a toddler community and then an elementary classroom. I currently still guide, I'm the elementary guide and still the head of school. Um, We've grown from the children's house. So we started with the children's house, added a toddler community and then added an elementary classroom. Our oldest children are now in upper elementary, but we, our classes are still, we still have a 6 to 12 classroom. So my role hasn't changed much because I'm still in the classroom. I'm still... Kind of the curriculum and creative lead <laughs> and the chief inspirer of the community. <laughs> oh, so, I love that! But I, I really love being. I my, I love being in the classroom. I love being with the children. Um, I love guiding the children and just getting that understanding. Seeing all of those things that we read in the Montessori books, seeing them happen real time and just getting a deeper understanding of the children. I also love that I get to spend all day with my children, you know, like get to be in their lives and watch them evolve. It has been a blessing to be their teacher for so long. Yeah.
0: Oh, that's so special. What has that been like um, to have your children in your classroom as they go through each community? Um,
1: it has, it has its blessings. And then it has its challenges. If I'm being honest, you know, Um, I feel like you have to be really conscious. For me, I've had to be really conscious of drawing that line. it's easy to but I, I always have to remind myself because many of the children when they come to school they can be themselves they can they do some things that are right and they do some things that are wrong but I'm not calling their parents at the end of the day to say oh your child did this this and that unless it was something really terrible which it rarely is but because my own children when we go home I'm sometimes like tempted to say in school you did this today or you did that so i have to consciously just shut that door when we when we go back um when we leave school um something funny about being their guide is that at home and everywhere everywhere they call me miss juniper so people are always shocked (laughs) when they say and and in nigeria respect is such a big thing so many times people don't even hear the miss so they think me Juno, and they're like what they're calling me juniper i'm like i'm their teacher so they call <laughs> me miss juniper so that's that's interesting and then i think one last thing that i'll share about that is that um being their teacher being their teacher and their mom the one thing that has really helped me because it was really it, it has been really hard because you, i find that you're harder on your children because you're conscious of everybody's expectations of them and so when they're being their selves you're you want them to be perfect because i'm not only am i their teacher i'm also the owner of the school that they attend so it can be where they're supposed to be your show horses in a way like you feel like people are judging you your school and everything by them so it's a conscious decision that i have to make that you know they didn't choose this i chose this for myself and for them but still, I have to respect the fact that there's it's a there's a big expectation. There are challenges for them too, you know. Like I'm always working. They many times have to just do their own thing up when I'm busy with school. So I have to respect that. And then we, I, what has really helped me was just waking up in the morning. I found that. I would wake up very early in the morning, get ready and rush to school because they're quite independent and they can prepare themselves. And our school is located, we live in the school property, so they can prepare themselves and come to school. And then, you know, so we start the day with school and then I try to be mom after school, but I found that I used to be really tired after school and a little bit irritable. So I had to make the decision to start the day as mom. So I actually wake up in the morning and try to give them my best before we meet in school. So I try to wake them up, you know, smile, talk about how they slept, make sure that they're groomed, properly and so that we have already connected as mom and children before we meet in school as teacher and then after school we still connect at mom but even if I'm not giving them my best I already started the day on a positive note and I feel like I feel like that has made
0: such a big difference for us. Ah oh, that's so interesting it's such a um, it's like another layer of the preparation of the mm-hmm. adult the preparation right. of the adult as mom the preparation of the adult as teacher oh right. thanks for sharing that um simone tell us a little bit about jack ronda tree montessori and kind of how that started and how your role has evolved over the years
2: yeah so i was in australia and then we moved to the netherlands and it was just meant to be for a year so i started working at a montessori nursery there it was a bilingual nursery and they were looking for english-speaking montessori teachers which was great and i stayed there for another year when we decided to stay for another year and then after two years i really missed working with the parents because i had been an assistant at a play group and i really love that when you run a montessori play group where the parent comes along with the child or another family member or the nanny or something like that, you see that when they get picked up, um, you know, the uh, the thing that made f- I found hard working at the nursery was that the children get picked up and the parents would be doing their coat on for them or, you know, just things like that were just, um, you were doing so much beautiful work in the classroom and then they'd ask, like, how many times did their diaper been changed and you're just like, oh, I think you're missing the big picture. So having the parents in the classroom or the family members in the classroom, I feel like I can help the families develop alongside their child. And um, when I first started working, this was in 2008, I opened Jacaranda Tree Montessori here in Amsterdam. And we have a very international community because I chose to make it an English-speaking environment. So we have, say, 20% Dutch families and then the rest are international families. And um, I just love seeing the... The families develop alongside the child and when I had yeah when I started it was like 80% working with the children and 20% working with the family member and then it started being about 50-50 working with the child and working with the family and now it's about switch to, so that it's about 80% working with the adults in the classroom and 20% working with the children because when you have a prepared environment and the older children are helping the younger children I don't need to give so many lessons you know and then the adults need so much support or they have questions questions to ask so going, how can we apply a Montessori approach to this and this? And I just love like problem solving with them and helping them come to their own answers as well. So trying to do Montessori with the adults as well.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. Do you um find yourself kind of giving lessons more to adults than children?
2: Um, not so much. Like the adults will ask if they don't know how our material works. A lot of I work My playgroup's from 14 months to three years old. So a lot of the activities that they're doing are quite self-explanatory. And actually, I really try and say to the parents, only step in when they're stuck. You know, you don't need to show them how to do a lot of these things, particularly when they've already watched another child do it. And so um, it's more about teaching the adults how to sit on their hands and to do less, um, but also just like seeing every family is different. So today in a class, I had one family where they were wanting alternatives to saying good job because they're quite new in the class and that was a big switch for them. Like what do I say instead and how why we do that to make them understand that kind of concept. And then there's other families who've come with two or three children and they're asking different questions about siblings and how they can make space for each child and and different things like that. So, um, yeah.
0: Do you find that a lot of adults are inspired to do Montessori training themselves? I think that is how, we connected with that workshop that you did in London. It was somebody in my training class who had had her child in your program and then she was inspired to become a Montessori teacher. Do you find that that happens a lot that people, that it's kind of a starting point and people wanna dive deeper into it?
2: Do you know, not that as many as I hope. I think I really have created Montessori adults and they take those principles into their lives and that kind of thing, but not that many have changed careers that I know have, know of. And I, I feel, find that a shame, but you know, I can't make anybody change their path or anything like that. But I do think a lot of people, it starts to make them see their relationships differently, not only with their children, but with other people in the world. And i, I that's like the big work really for peace in the world. So that's exciting.
0: Uh, yeah, definitely. So let's talk a little bit about the new book, The Montessori Child, that's coming out in March 2024. Uh, So how did the idea for this book come about? Was it always going to be a three-book series? Because first, Simone, you wrote The Montessori Toddler, and then you both wrote The Montessori Baby together. So now you co-wrote The Montessori Child. Did that happen sort of organically? One book came out and then you decided to write another one, or was there a big vision from the start?
2: I'm happy to take this one because um, back in 2019, I was doing a book tour for the Montessori toddler. And I was at a dinner with some Montessori people in Canada And um, one of the people there was Terence Milley, and he's a six to 12 elementary guide. And I was saying, I really, people keep asking now that they want the Montessori baby because they want to know what to do in the first year. And they're saying like, you should definitely do the Montessori preschooler. And he said, the Montessori child, we could write that, you know. And um, so it was already planted like a long time ago. Um, But then the actual, how it came together, we had um, a publisher then, who was interested to publish the Montessori baby and we it proposed the Montessori preschooler and the Montessori child and they said I really don't know if there's room in the parenting world for people to buy four books it's a very strange kind of way that we divide it up but it's so for us so important and we're like there's no way you can make one book about you know the three to twelve child there's so much to cover but um we we, we've managed and um it was a really fun process and I think what um is really fun is we submitted a manuscript for this book um that was 130,000 words which if you've got any idea it's probably about nearly twice as much as the Montessori toddler and then it was like how to take out so much information but not lose anything of what we wanted to say so it's really like I'm so grateful to the editors we have at our publisher who did that so beautifully because you just hold on to every Montessori concept you want to make sure that it gets passed along to the families um and so they did a beautiful job and we did We compressed this enormous chapter that Juniper made on Montessori activities for three to 12-year-olds into a beautiful appendix. And so then we could fit more information onto the page. Um, And um, I'm also really proud of that chapter, Juniper, because you didn't make sure that um, a family would not need to buy one piece of Montessori material um, to do Montessori at home. We may want it, didn't want it to look like a Montessori classroom. It's not a Montessori homeschooling book. It's really about how you can do Montessori at home with your family, even if your child doesn't go to Montessori school or if, if your child does go to Montessori school, but it's not replicating a Montessori environment. So that was really, um, I was really excited to read that chapter and just how much care Junifer had taken to make sure um, that that
0: came through. Yeah. And when you're talking about the scope of the book, I mean, it, it is focused on the three to 12 year old child, but you also talk about the third plane adolescent and the fourth plane young adult. So I was very impressed that you managed to uh, cover all of that in the book. So kudos to both of you. Um, Junifa, do you want to tell us a little bit about what the writing process has been like for you two? I mean, you're in different countries, different continents. Um What has it been like? I guess is it is it different this time around from the Montessori baby, or has it kind of been similar?
1: Um, It was similar in some ways and different in some ways. So with the Montessori baby, when I first when we first had the conversation, I was attending an AGM in Amsterdam, and I went over to Simone's house to have dinner. When she said, "Would you like to write this book?" book with me and I said oh I was actually thinking about no she's she's no actually she said she wanted to write a book about Montessori babies and I was thinking I said on the flight here I was thinking the same thing that I would ri- like to write a book about the first year and she said oh why don't we write it together and sounded like a great idea I was like sure and so right there at dinner she pulled out a piece of paper and we brainstormed on paper and kind of came up with the chapters and what we wanted to write about and so that was how the um, Montessori babies outline was created, and then we worked on it. We kind of took some chapters that each of us would work on, and then as we fleshed it out, we would sh- we would each read and add and remove. So that was the. Um, the montessori baby with the montessori child it was similar in the sense that we already had this framework the chapters we wanted to start with but then simone created an excel sheet for each of those chapters and we would just um put quite like as she encountered questions or ideas came or i um, got some ideas we would just put in like the thoughts for things that we thought we should talk about and which chapters they would go into and then we assigned the chapters to each other, but then as we started to work on it, maybe something would come up that we would feel like, oh, maybe this needs to, we don't need to talk about this so much for this age group. We, you know, we would take so for example, the social and emotional de- development chapter. Uh, is it social and emotional development? No, social so and, moral, and moral so social and moral development. Sorry. So that was a chapter that wasn't in the um Montessori baby book. But in the, it was touched, you know, we touched the idea of the child's uh, emotional, more emotional for that age group. But it wasn't, we don't really talk much about social development or moral development in for a baby in their first year. But that's such a big part of the child's life, especially in the second plane from six to 12. So in this book, that had to be a chapter because there was so much to touch and to talk about. But that came up as we started writing and like just kind of, Exploring what what are some of the issues that we encounter? Maybe the parents ask us ask um Simone in her playgroup, or I encounter with the children in my class, or with our own children, or that parents ask us. So we kind of just finessed it as we went along, and so some chapters became whole. Some chapters we fused together. Um the the editor our editor Macy also does a lot of work, like when she reads it because she's. She's not a Montessori teacher or a Montessori parent. So she can actually look at our words with fresh eyes and just kind of give us suggestions. But I think that in general, it's been really amazing to write the book with Simon because somehow our brains are wired. We're very different in the way that we approach things, but our brains are also wired similarly because we would see something, like we would say something and it's like, oh, I was thinking the same thing. Or we would, if we're offered choices or options to choose very often we would make similar choices so um a lot we also have had to have a lot of zoom calls a lot of whatsapp calls um a lot of emails <laughs> so we were, technology has been a help for us so we would usually write and um, exchange with each other for the other person to read, but sometimes what helps is just to get on a call and like go through it together and just get it get it done. So for different parts of the book, we've had to employ different methods, but it has really, I mean, I can't, it, we were talking about it before before this call, how in many ways it, it has felt like a symbiotic relationship. You know how, where we depend, our strengths, we, we bring our, both of us bring our strengths together and, um I couldn't have seen myself writing it without her and she said the same thing that she couldn't have seen herself writing this particular book because we just rely on each other each person brings their strengths and you know we think about things and you suggest I suggest we finesse so it, it has really been a joyful both books have been challenging in their own ways but joyful one last thing in the for the Montessori baby <laughs> in a way it was a blessing that we had the lockdown right (laughs) because there was somewhat more time um but this book there was not that much time so we were always kind of like stealing time from other things and it also stretched longer this this book has been in the works for a very long time um so it this felt longer so even though it was longer there was less time available like at least for me, and I think for Simone too, less blocks of time available to dedicate solely to the book. So it really required, you know, making time to write. It was managing hundred other things with writing the book. But I think that it's such a, I mean, even I, when I read the book, I'm just amazed that we created something so useful and so I feel, so, it, I feel like it can be a blessing to many, many families. And so I'm so, so grateful. I think that's the word that comes to my mind for the opportunity to collaborate in birthing something that will be timeless. I think like there will always be wisdom to be found, I think, and I hope through generations.
0: Something that I find so inviting about all of your books is that they really call people in and they don't judge people. They don't, many, sometimes Montessori can come off as rather, you know, didactic and, and like we're telling people the one right way to do things. And I, I never feel that way about your books. So I think that you've achieved that with this book as well. And I hope, I'm sure other people have told you this before, but they're very, um, Reassuring and non judgmental. And so I think that is quite an accomplishment um, with Montessori. Like, as Montessorians, we know that Montessori is not like that, but I think that it sometimes tends to come off that way. So um, I always appreciated that about your books.
1: Thank you for saying that.
0: So, Simone, what has it been like for you to focus on the three to 12 child? Um, You know, you've, of course, raised older children, but your work is mostly focused on the zero to three child. So what has it been like to kind of shift focus to the older child?
2: I know you call it imposter syndrome or something. It's just like, how do I write a book about a three to 12 year old child? But during COVID, what I was busy with was I did my assistance training for the AMI assistance training for three to six, six to 12 and the 12 to 18 year old. And so, um, I often get asked questions about the older children because in my classes, um, I have families with many children and they're always they never have questions then about the child that's currently in the class. But like, what about the child here? And the lived experience is true, like actually raising Oliver and Emma in a Montessori way when I didn't have an elementary training it was how do I still apply Montessori principles as they grow older and how do you maintain that respectful relationship? So um, I just kept saying, this is what I do and this is how I found helpful and this is what didn't work and this is what did work. And so I feel like when we were writing the book about the three to 12 year old child, um, I couldn't pull from examples in the classroom necessarily, but anytime that I heard my friends talking about their children who were younger and things like that. And I'm like, oh, I would have approached that in a different way. So I'd make a note in my notebook and add it into our spreadsheet of like things that I wanted to discuss. Um, and um, yeah, it was kind of just like that. I And I think that like Jennifer explained, it's such a collaborative process. Like. I might work on one chapter and then Juniper will give me input into like, oh yeah, this is how I see it at my home. And so I can put in an example um, and flesh it out that way. And likewise with Juniper, Juniper's has these beautiful Montessori expressions, but I can say, oh, that doesn't translate very easily. Like I'm not understanding it so that we can, let's make it into more plain English um, and that kind of thing. So that's where that symbiotic collaboration comes into play. So I felt like I was in safe hands with Juniper because I can just write what I What my gut felt, and uh, everything that I took from the three, like the three to six, six to 12, and 12 to 18 training. And the other thing is, is that I'm writing, we're writing for families to put it into practice. They don't need to know um, the level of a monster reactivity, how to present it and things like that. We're writing to put it into daily life, how you really accept a child for who they are, how you observe a child and all those things. I mean, I say everyone should do a zero to three training before they go to work at any age group because they're so pure at that age. And so uh, in some ways, I feel like I've been well-versed like because... Yeah. If you've ever lived with a zero to three, like, zero to three child and a teenager. So for example, I was working in the classroom with zero to three and then had teenagers at home and like, they're exactly the same. So I did most of the work on the adolescent chapter. That one was easy to write.
0: So, that was actually one of my questions. And I wanted to ask you about um, some of the similarities be- that we see between the toddler and the adolescent, because that's something that you touch on in the book. And it's something that we talk a lot about in Montessori. So can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, I'm happy to speak to that. And, Jennifer, if you've got anything to add, please do. But, like, um, yeah, so for those who don't aren't so familiar with the four planes of development, you have the first plane is from zero to six. And then from six to twelve is the second plane, and twelve to eighteen is the third plane, and eighteen to twenty-four is the fourth plane. And there are like parallel parallel planes between the zero to six and the six um, and the twelve to eighteen, as well as for the more stable periods, the six to twelve-year-olds and the eighteen to twenty-four-year-olds. And so, in the these parallel planes you, of the toddler and the the adolescent you see so much volatility and I love the Dr. Montessori describes the adolescent as a newborn a social newborn um, and as fragile as a newborn and it really makes you realize yeah would I really often we expect so much of teenagers but actually they're rewiring their brains they're coming at the situation looking at things completely fresh their hormones are in flux just the same as a you know zero to six child it has so much growth happening in that period and they're very emotional like toddlers so um, what seems irrational to us when they can't get the right spoon it's the same as how irrational a teenager can be when they slam the door and you've said the wrong thing you know they've rolled their eyes at the smallest thing and so what the I appreciate about teenagers is you can have time so you can let them calm down and then you have a fresh slate to come back and say oh earlier you know when you slam the door and then usually they say sorry 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 I don't even know why I was so upset you know so um yeah teenagers in some ways are easier but I always like to say to the families who come to my classes this is just good practice for when you your children get older <laughs> Um, So this is
0: just a warm up. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I've been, I'm three to six trained myself, but I have been spending more time with adolescents because, um, so I used to work at Austin Montessori School in Austin, Texas, and I was a children's house guide, but they take their students to Italy every year. Now I I live in New York and I don't work in Texas anymore, but I've been going on this trip to Italy because I speak Italian. So I'm spending a lot of time with 14 and 15-year-olds, and I'm learning anew every year how to interact with that older child and the adolescent. And sometimes, sometimes they seem like adults, and sometimes you see that they're really not. And so finding that balance has been an interesting experience for me.
2: And it's the same as the crisis of independence of a, you know, a child who's turned one, one minute, they want to be a baby and then the next they want to do everything for themselves. Me, do it, me, do it. And that's the, yeah. So it's exactly the same. They sit confused a little bit and it's hard for adults to understand and respect that you have two different children in one.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And meeting your child where they are in each moment and seeing mm-hmm. them as a new person each, each day, each moment, it's, it's hard. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about language and bilingualism, multilingualism, since we talk about that a lot on this podcast. So I'd love to hear about your relationship with bilingualism or multilingualism um, in your own life. So um, in
1: Nigeria, most of us are, so English is the national language, but we also have our traditional or our own specific languages so i'm igbo my husband is also igbo um but there are many different languages and more and more families are speaking only english and not you know the their own traditional languages falling off so one of the things that i really hoped for for my children was to learn how to speak igbo and um i haven't been 100% <laughs> um successful but it's something that we're constantly working on and what I found to work so when my daughter my first two children I did not we didn't even make an effort if to be honest but with my third daughter from when she was born I started to speak Igbo to her um I was that that was the only language that I was speaking to everybody else spoke English to her and I found that she was actually picking it up I then traveled to take my elementary training and I was gone for an extended period of time. And when I came back, it was really hard to get back into it. But in the last year, I've actually started again and I find I'm actually speaking able to all of them, my sons and um, my daughters. And I found that she she's actually picking, my daughter who I used to speak Igbo to when she was a baby is actually picking it up so much easier than the other ones. And now with a new baby, it has been a blessing to have a new baby because it's an opportunity to do over. So with my baby, I'm only speaking Igbo to her. And because I'm only speaking Igbo to her, the others are picking it up. And sometimes they will say to her, what they think I would say to her in that um, moment. So I'm really hoping, actually, every year I set an intention, like a goal that I hope to focus on with my children. So for us this year, it's actually language. And so I'm hoping that by the end of the year, they would there would have been like a huge leap in their, not only their comprehension, because they actually understand a lot of it, but just for them to speak more naturally in Igbo. In our school, in all the classrooms, the children are immersed in French too. And we have found that especially with the younger ones who, when we first started, we weren't, it wasn't stable. Like we didn't always, sometimes we would have a French teacher or then the French teacher would move on. But um, for a few years now, it has been stable for the children's house and we found that the children who started early who started from the toddler classroom and have had consistency in their exposure to French are actually speaking especially those who maybe their parents make an effort at home and have some French at home too so it has been amazing for me how you know how easy it is for the children. If you start early and for my daughter, what I took away is that even when it was said in my training, that one of the gifts of exposing your child to multiple languages is that then it's easy for them to pick up even other languages because their ears are tuned and able to pick up like those differences in languages. And I've seen that with my daughter because for her first year I spoke Igbo to her and then I stopped and only spoke English. But now she, I find that it's easiest for her to pick up both Igbo as I'm trying to reintroduce it to her and French in her classroom. So, yeah, that's my experience ah. so far with that.
0: Yeah, that is so cool to be able to see that happening in real time and also to be able to recognize kind of the differences in her experience having heard Igbo from infancy versus your older children. That's so special. Simone, how about you? What have your experiences with bilingualism and multilingualism been?
2: Well, with my own family, we moved to the Netherlands when my children were four and five years old. And we just put them into a Dutch Montessori school because, you know, children uh, pick up languages really easily and we didn't really think about it. So I literally, I think, thought that maybe the first week of school, they were just going to start speaking Dutch. I have no idea. And sometimes being naive is the best way. And um, yeah, it took them probably six months to pick up the Dutch. And I actually say that like it takes a while for them really to have it as their literacy language um, to be able to read as a native speaker and all those kind of things. Um, so my children did Dutch at school and then English, we always spoke English at home. Um, and I would definitely not, I don't feel bilingual. I'm like 80% of the Dutch language. I've kind of, after 17 years, I, but the last like to be a native speaker, I just don't feel like I'm that. It depends how you actually, Um, define bilingualism because some people might say if you can order a loaf of bread in the shop well, that I can do you know then I'm bilingual but um, and uh, but I love languages because I learned French and German at school and so that all helps when you're learning new languages and it was really fun to see how Oliver and Emma learned Dutch because Emma was four and um, they were both luckily able to already read English when we moved here Um, And so um, Emma was definitely more in the absorbent mind stage. um, The way that she learned, she was just picking it up and no one really taught her. She had some like baby books that had some words and she would just see the word, like see a picture of a table and it would say Tafel and she'd just say Tafel. You know, she just picked it up like this where Oliver was really sounding out the letters. Um, And so he was starting to become more like a conscious, like, yeah. So it was really interesting to see how different differently they learned and he was sounding it out and then translating it in English they say this and in Dutch they say that and it was a much more conscious way of learning so Emma was probably like half in the unconscious absorbent mind and half in the conscious absorbent mind it was really fun um and then if you ask my children around the age of 12 they realized because we'd go to the library here in Holland and um we'd get like a English book that had been translated um, sorry a Dutch book that was translate. So for example, they'd read Harry Potter, but in Dutch, and then they realized um, that the characters were different names and things like that. So they always preferred to read the original version if they could. Um, And so they then their preference was not just to read in Dutch because they were available at the library, but to read it in English if it was available. Um, And even now my children now are at university in Holland, but they're the Dutch, they're both English speaking universities. And so I'm actually kind of happy because that last piece, they get to a very high level of English and at Dutch schools anyway. But um, to write all your assignments and things like that is like really the last piece. So I'm kind of happy that they're consolidating that now at university. Um, but it's kind of cute because they've read so much in English, but they haven't always heard every word they've read. they sometimes just pronounce like a word like enough, like just wrong. And you're just like, oh, I guess you haven't heard how you actually say that. And so then I'd say, would you like to hear how we say it? Um, so that was always kind of like a fun little side effect of reading a lot but not actually hearing that much English spoken around you
1: you know what she just what Simone just said about reading a lot but not I, I had I've had a similar experience that with my son that you know how we talk it's a completely different topic but I just it's something that I encountered recently so my first son reads a lot like he so he reads so much that I can't even keep up with He's reading. He's always reading. And um, I stopped reading out loud to him because he was always reading, right? But then I realized that there's some words that he encounters that he has never heard before. And so he would give it his own pronunciation. So for example, war, he just calls war, war. <laughs> and he calls, <laughs> or like heard, heard, you know, because he just pronounces it how it's written. And, and, when I recognized that, I thought, you know, this is probably why it's important to just continue to read to children, you know, even when they can read to themselves, just because there are some words that they encounter that they will create. I know they'll figure it out eventually, but I also find that even when I correct him, when he has, he has internalized that pronunciation, it takes him, he, he struggles to switch it from that pronunciation that he created for himself. So I just, thought of that when Simone shared that completely off tangent but (laughs) no
0: it actually made me remember an experience I had when I was probably six or seven reading a book and I read I came across the word ma'am but I guess I had never seen it written before maybe I hadn't heard it much and I thought it was ma'am and I said like mom this is so funny like this character keeps calling his mom like -um." (laughs) ma'am (laughs) she's like oh that's the word ma'am and that made such an impression on me that i i still remember that but yeah that's a great point that you make about how important it is to continue to read to children even after they're still able to already able to read themselves simone is there any way that bilingualism and multilingualism comes into play in your classes
2: so I think I mentioned that it's an English-speaking environment. So I speak English, but there's so many international families that everyone just speaks their own language in the in the classroom. So an Italian family will speak Italian, and then we have Spanish speakers, and it's a real mix. Um, and then I have um, the in the book corner is half English books and half Dutch books. Um, honestly, it's really hard to find Dutch books that meet my Montessori requirements, you know, to have realistic pictures and things, because I go through a, a Dutch bookstore and so many animals you know driving cars and doing all these things and it's really really hard so um that's the downside but I have enough um and then we do some Dutch songs at singing time particularly because we have international families it teaches the culture um of the space as well you know you learn language and that's part of like living in the Netherlands and around Sinterklaas time they have special Sinterklaas songs so we practice those um and also, just yeah, culturally, you might take on some of the traditions from the Netherlands as well. So that comes into play, it kind of crosses over culture and, and language at the same time. Um, but when I have a, a Dutch family in the class, they might talk to me in Dutch and then I answer back in English. And then the parent, if they really don't understand. So, for example, I have um, a very articulate three year old who needs to start school soon but she was asking me a very long story today. And so in, um, and so I was answering in English and then her mom said, would you like me to translate it? And then she would translate that whole story um, where most things otherwise, it's so interesting because I can say to a child, there was a Romanian girl who had never been to my class. It was the very first time and we were sitting at the snack time and she was watching all the other children um, have their orange juice. And I put down a jug I said, would you like some juice or water or would you like them both? And she just... Um, got on and and did it. And it was kind of like, even though it's a lot of things that like nonverbal communication in with the zero to three age group. So they hear it, but they see mostly like what I'm offering and then they can respond. Like I'm holding out a bowl of bananas. Would you like some bananas today? And then they nod, you know, they might not say yes yet. But it's, so that's how kind of like, I see a little bit of like multilingualism happening in our classroom. A lot of nonverbal communication would be the extra language there.
0: Yeah. And what a rich language environment for them to be immersed in as well.
2: Also, absolutely. I think when you work with toddlers, you say the same things over and over, like in the same way. So like at the end, I say, oh, so that means that it's singing time. And so when you're finished, you can put your balls on the top and your glasses in the middle and the placements down the bottom. And I say exactly the exact same thing every week. So for non-native English speakers, that's also going to be really helpful. So they'll pick up the same kind of words each time.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That consistency and repetition is so important. So what do you hope that readers will get from your book about the three to six or six to 12 year old child, like the kind of overarching, um, overarching view of this age group? What's kind of one thing that you hope they'll walk away with?
1: I think that what I hope is basically the byline of the book, which says um, that they are capable. Is that what you are going to say, Simone? <laughs> <laughs> Um, They're capable of so much. They're capable of so much physically, intellectually, socially, morally. They're capable if we prepare the environment, if we give them the opportunity, if we prepare ourselves to support them. They are capable. They are compassionate. So, you know, we can help them to be compassionate. We can guide them to see how to be kind, how to, um, to express themselves, but express it kindly. To stand up for themselves, to interact with others, all of those things they are capable of. That they can be capable. They can be compassionate, and they are creative. They can create their abilities. They can create their understanding. They can create new things. So I feel like those are the that's for me that's the biggest thing that i want you to see your child from those lenses and i think that it covers so much and also the parents to know that you two are capable of raising children who can be what you want them to you know who can reach their full potential in these arenas i'll i'll, I'll leave um monty to say the other <laughs>
2: Well, no, I just I I was laughing when Jennifer started talking about it because exactly that was what came in my mind. I mean, the byline like sums it up. And for those who don't know the book, the byline is a parent's guide to raising capable children with creative minds and compassionate hearts. And um, we co-created that site, that title. It's just a silly story, but like we were WhatsApping each other because we the publisher said we need a byline so we can put the book into the bookstores and things like that. And um, so. I don't know about you, Juniper, but the ideas come to me in the bath or when I'm cycling my bike and things like that. And I was cooking breakfast and I'm like, Juniper, I've got an idea. I'm just going to pop it here because I don't want to forget it and I don't have a piece of paper. So I sent it to her. And by the time I came back to it later in the day, she's like, we just need to add one more C because I'd written I'm Raising Children with Creative Minds and Compassionate Hearts. And she said, we need one more C. We need capable children with creative minds and compassionate hearts. I'm like, yes, we just make the best team. It's so fun. So that's why Juniper said like, it was a fun book to write because it's such a um, joy to get to work together and have that relationship.
0: It's really been beautiful. That's awesome. And I love alliteration. I mean, my podcast is also (laughs) alliterative, you know, so I love that. I think that is such um, a great way to summarize what we want for children and how we can help them to, like Junifa said, reach their full potential. So that kind of reaches the end of what I was hoping to talk about. Is there anything else that either of you wants to say before we wrap up?
2: I think one thing that I find super important is that Montessori should be accessible to as many people as possible. And that's what we hope that book also does is bring Montessori into anyone's life, whether they go to Montessori school or they can't afford or they don't have a Montessori school nearby. It's about applying the true Montessori principles about raising, you know, children in a respectful way. Um, And with what you have, you don't need to go and spend a lot of money either because people that puts people off as well. So it's making Montessori super accessible for any child, um, for every child, really, you know, that um, no matter if they're neurodivergent or that they um, are deaf or blind or whatever, that we can adjust and look at each child uniquely and support their development.
1: I was also going to add that and I think another thing that I love, I I think that our book does that, and I also love that because we the other families are reflected in the book we always share like the um, real stories the fam- feature families from around the world so we hope that everyone can see that there are different ways, there are different ways to implement around the world where you can still infuse your culture, you can infuse your preferences. It doesn't have to be one specific way. You, What we hope is that people read, understand and implement in a way that resonates and reflects with them. So I also love that. I hope that, and I mean, I hope you felt the same way. You don't have to read the entire book to get it. I feel like if you open any page that you open, I hope that you find something that you can take away that resonates with you or that you feel like I can do this today and make a difference for my family. So I we, we wanted to write a book that was truly useful, truly practical, truly accessible, and that, you know, that people just can, can relate with that makes montessori feel like i can do this it's not that challenging i can do this i can do one little change
0: i think that you definitely accomplished that with this book and and i appreciate that you said you can you don't have to read it cover to cover you can kind of check the index or open it to a page and get inspiration from that i think that's wonderful well thank you both for coming on the podcast and congratulations on the new book, which will be out March fifth. And I will link to uh, where you can pre-order it. And yeah, thanks again.
1: Thank you so Thank much, for having you us. So it was a much fun conversation. For yes, it was. Thank you.
0: Thank you again to Simone and Junifa for joining me on the podcast. I hope you enjoyed our conversation as much as I did. Their new book, The Montessori Child, comes out on March 5th, 2024, and be sure to pre-order it to get access to all of the pre-order bonuses. To enter to win a copy of their new book, don't forget to take the podcast listener survey. You can find links to everything in the episode description. You can find Simone on Instagram at The Montessori Notebook, You can find Junifa on Instagram at Montessori underscore Duoma, that's N-D-U-O-M-A, and you can find me on Instagram at multilingual.montessori. Make sure you're subscribed to the Multilingual Montessori podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review on whatever app you're listening through. It helps more people find the show. And I really do read every single one. Another wonderful way to support the podcast is to share it with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.